As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, our Savior, we come to you. Our hearts are cold, and we pray that you would warm them with your selfless love. Our hearts are sinful. Cleanse them with your precious blood. Our hearts are weak. Strengthen them with your joyous spirit. Our hearts are empty. Fill them with your divine presence. Heavenly Father, our hearts are yours. Possess them always and only for yourself. And send your spirit to open our hearts and minds to hear your voice in the word. And empower us to believe, obey, and rest in all you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. I want to consider the whole psalm together this evening. Psalm 115. And we'll begin our reading at verse 1. So Psalm 115 at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So we were gone all week at the RYS convention. So I thought this would be a good sermon for us to preach. I've been holding this sermon in reserve in case I got word one morning that Drew and Megan were going into labor and I would need to preach in a pinch. So I'm using my reserve sermon right now. They're here, it's okay. Um, uh, they're, they're not gone, but uh, I thought I would use this sermon. And it turned out well at RYS. We heard several times a choral piece that began with these words from Psalm 115, not unto us, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name be glory. And this has been a great psalm that has come to mind um, in God's people's minds when they've had great victories. 
Um, Psalm 115 has always come to people's minds when they're reminded that they've triumphed and they've triumphed in ways that can only be down to the Lord's goodness and intervention. Um, King Henry V in that famous Battle of Agincourt that's been made famous by Shakespeare's play, Henry V, uh, instructed his soldiers after they had won that victory that they were to walk the field singing Psalms 114 and 115. And that when they got to Psalm 115, verse 1, they were all to kneel in recognition that they had not triumphed in their own strength, but they triumphed in the strength of the Lord. Um, And so you can imagine an army that has just been victorious marching over the field and singing this this psalm, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name be glory. Uh, That that army that was greatly outnumbered on the fields of Agincourt, but triumphed. the king wanted that known, that it was God's glory he was giving in that moment. Um, similarly, William Wilberforce, when the, when the parliament in Britain finally passed the abolition of slavery, uh, this was the psalm he sat down to meditate on, uh, that the cause for abolition had gone forward and succeeded, not because of any work by human hands, but because of the work of the Lord. And so he also meditated and thought, not unto us, O Lord, but to thy name, be glory given. Uh, This is a psalm that's always come to mind in times where God's people reflect on great victories. And it's one of these psalms that fits in this collection of psalms that's known as the collection of Egyptian praises or the Egyptian halal, um, Psalms 113 through 118. They reflect on God's victories in such a way that they became used always during the Passover meal. And so God's people would use Psalms 113 through 118 as they celebrated the Passover meal. And Psalm 115 was the psalm they would sing first after the meal. Um, They would reflect on how God had brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and they would celebrate that Passover meal in remembrance of that great event of liberation in the history of God's people. And they would sing, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name be glory given. And you can see how this psalm functions in the life of God's people to be reminded of God's great victories, that God's great cause to be glorified in the world for delivering his people. Um, And it's always been a great song for the church in the wilderness. The church to sing out to the glory of God's name, particularly when God's enemies are saying, where is their God? Um, This is a, a good song for the church in the wilderness journeying between redemption and glory where the world is always tempted to say to us, where is your God? Um, And this is a great psalm that reminds us where our God is and who our God is in the midst of this world. A psalm for expressing our confidence uh, in God's unfailing glory, in God's unfading blessings. And so it's a wonderful psalm to think about and to consider together. So as we think about this psalm, I want to think about first the confident plea that God's people begin with to ask God to glorify his name. Uh, then I want to think about how this psalm calls us to trust in the God who is our help and our shield. And finally, the covenantal hope that God's people express and the certainty that God will be a God who blesses his people. And so that's how I want to think about this psalm together uh, with you this evening. The confident plea, the call to trust, and the covenantal hope that's expressed in this glorious psalm. 
uh, as we've noted, this psalm begins with a very confident plea stated in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Um, And the situation in which God's people are calling for this is, as we said, in response to the taunts of the nations that are saying, where is their God? Um, If you think about the situation of Israel, they did not worship with images. Uh, They worshipped a God who they believed dwelt above the cherubim. We heard this morning about the the furniture of the tabernacle and the temple. We thought of those things this morning. And they worshipped an unseen God. He dwelt above the cherubim, but he could not be seen. They saw no form when he spoke to them, and they did not worship a God in a form like the like the idol nations did. And so there was always this temptation by foreign nations to say, what kind of people is this? What kind of worship is this? What kind of God do you have where no one can ever even see him? Um, where exactly is your God? And sometimes when you have a God that is unseen... Um, and things that are unexplainable are happening, or things that are difficult to explain are happening to God's people, you can see how there's this tendency for the unbelieving to mock and say, where exactly is this God you say you serve? Where is he? Why doesn't he show up? We don't see him anywhere. And this is the confident plea of God's people calling out for him to glorify his name because they're saying, why should the nation say this kind of thing? God might not be seen, but what God does for his people is seen. Uh, They might say, we don't see your God, but you see the evidence of our God everywhere. You see the evidence of our God in his steadfast love and in his faithfulness to his people. And so this is really a plea that is calling out to God that he would not allow this this statement of pagan pride, as one person put it, to go unchallenged. That God would answer this call by making his name known. And this has always been the temptation of the world to say, where is your God? Um, If you serve a God, then why don't we see him work? Uh, This is the kind of thing that people taunted Jesus with on the cross. You say you're the Christ... So come down off the cross then. I mean, if you're the son of God, let God save you if he loves you. Um, come down off that cross. Show us you have the power to do that. And then we'll, then we'll see where God is. And then we'll believe in what you've done. Well, it's the same thing that, that scientists can do today. Is they'll say, you know, I look in my microscope and I don't see God. And I look in my telescope and I don't see God. So where is your God? Um, This has been the challenge that God's people have faced, this kind of pagan pride that's always been lifted up in the world. And what do we always want in answer to that? Um, Not that people would be shown to be wrong or that we would be shown to be right, but that God would be glorified. Uh, That God's name would be known. That's really what God's people want here, is that God would glorify his name Not for their sake. You know, sometimes we wish that's why God would glorify his name, so we could be shown to be right. Uh, So they would stop bothering us about these things. uh, So that we could say, I told you so. Um, We can be motivated by selfish motives as well. But this psalm reminds us why God's people want God 
to vindicate his name for his own sake. Uh, so that the world would know the God that we know. That he would intervene for the glory of his own name. Not unto us. Not unto us. But to your name be glory. Uh, make the nation see who you are. Not mocking you for your imagined absence, but glorifying you for the presence you've shown in the world. Why is it that the world can't see God for who he is? Um, sometimes that, that dumbfounds us, doesn't it? Where, especially if a scientist looks in his telescope and says, well, you know, I don't see God. Because we say, when we see the new pictures from, you know, the new great telescope they have, we say, we see God in all of that. Um, when you look in the microscope and see what you see, we see God in all of that. How do you not see God in all of that? Where is the mistake they make? Um, well, they try to reduce God to their own terms. That's what they're used to. The pagans are used to always having a God that they make, a God that they make in their own image. They have no concept of a God who could be so high above them that he's far beyond their reach. And that's what this psalm mentions. Why, do they not, why are they unable to see God? Because he resides far above their view. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He's so far above what the world wants to see. Um, he's so far above. It's sort of embarrassing that you would try to say, well, I, I don't really believe in God because I can't wrap my arms around him. Don't you understand who God is, the psalmist would say. He's far above where we are. He's far above us. Why should we expect to be able to comprehend him or somehow put our minds or wrap our minds around him? If we look back to Psalm 113, the first psalm in this collection, what do verses 4 through 6 say about God in Psalm 113? The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and on the earth? God is so high and lifted up. He has to come to look down on us where we are. Um, that was some of the kind of comedy in Genesis when they're trying to build the Tower of Babel and they say, you know, in their folly, we're going to build up to God. Um, the text tells us that when God wants to see what they're doing, he has to stoop down to take a look at what they're doing. It's, it's almost the Moses way of communicating to us. Our God is so high and lifted up that even when we think we can build up to him, that we can in our folly build up to God, God would still have to stoop way down to see what we're doing. We're nowhere close to where God is. We're nowhere close to being on God's level. He's far above. Almighty in his power. Um, it's an incomprehensible kind of power that our God has, that he dwells above the heavens and does all that he pleases. Right? There, there's so much that we would like to do that we're incapable of doing, or that we you know, make to-do lists for ourselves, and then we work through part of them and thought, boy, I thought I was going to get a lot more accomplished than I got accomplished today. We have no, no concept of having so much power that you can do all that pleases you. Everything that you will to accomplish is accomplished. That's a measure of power beyond our understanding. 
And the psalmist says, then that's really where you see the stark contrast between their gods that are no gods and our God who is the true God. Our God dwells in the heavens and does all of he pleases. What of their gods? You know, they're so proud of the gods they see and the gods they have that they can go to the temple and see his image. But let's think about those gods. Do they have any power? No, they depend upon men for their existence. In Psalm, the second part of Psalm 4, verse 4, they're, they're the work of human hands. They can't even make themselves. And once they're made, what can they do? They look really grand, silver and gold. Beautiful. Glorious. But they can't do anything. They're entirely lifeless and inanimate. And we see how the psalmist beautifully just turns the folly of the pagan pride on its head. You mock us for worshiping the true God who is and does all that he pleases. And you serve these gods who can't do anything. They can't make themselves exist. You had to make them exist. And they can't do anything for you. Um, they, they look like things that can do things, but they can't. Mouths that don't speak, eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, noses that don't smell, hands that don't feel, feet that don't walk, mouths that don't make sounds. What are they? The psalmist says, idols are dead nothings. And verse 8 is filled with a serious warning. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them. If these idols are dead nothings, then what is the danger? The danger is you trust in them and you serve them, you make them and you become like them. We see why our God is so adamant that we avoid idolatry, that we flee from idolatry because he doesn't want us to become dead nothings, trusting in things that are nothing and becoming like them. Um, They can't see, they can't save, and those who serve them end up dead. And that's how God is so different than all of these idols. That's why Israel can call out to their God with such confidence. Idols are dead nothings. God is the living everything. There's nothing that he cannot do for his people. There's nothing he will not do for his people. He is the powerful covenant God who always shows himself faithful to his covenant promises. Our God shows his steadfast love to his people. Our God shows his faithfulness to all that he's promised to us. He shows that he is alive and that he is a God who can be trusted. That we have not made him. He has made us. He is not a dead nothing. He is a living everything who has given to his people life and breath and everything. Given us salvation. Is a God who hears and keeps his people. 
And that's why the, the cry of God's people throughout the generations that God would glorify his name is finally answered in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the highest expression of God glorifying his name. That's the highest expression of God's steadfast love and faithfulness seen in the world when God comes in the flesh. And even when he was there to be seen in the world, people didn't understand who he was. People still were able to say, where is your God? The pagan pride was still there when they mocked the king, even when he was accomplishing and fulfilling God's covenant of grace by his steadfast love and faithfulness. And if his first coming glorified his father, how much more will his second coming glorify the Lord and glorify the name of the Lord and show his steadfast love and faithfulness in the world? Now, Sometimes the church gets frustrated about how often that, that pagan pride is manifested in the world. Where is your God? But we should know that there is a day coming when the name of the Lord will be glorified. That the coming of Jesus, there won't be anyone who will really be able to say, where is their God? Uh, He will be seen. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether they submit to him and serve him and glory in that day or whether they have all their lives been opposed to him, their knees will bow and their tongues will confess. The glory of the Lord will be seen. This is what we're praying for as God's people when we say, come Lord Jesus. We're praying, Lord, glorify your name in all the earth. Show the nations where is our God and give glory to your name. Let your steadfast love and faithfulness be shown. And because we serve a God who is a true God, who is a living everything, then God's people can trust him in confidence. That he is not like these idols who cannot serve and cannot help. He is a God who is always a help and a shield. That's why we see this call to trust in the verses nine, in verses nine through eleven, particularly, O Israel, trust in the Lord; He is their help and their shield. We hear this threefold call: uh, first, called to Israel, to the congregation, to all of God's people. Trust the Lord; He is their help and their shield. Uh, there is the priesthood; then they're called to trust the Lord; He is their help and their shield. All the people who fear the Lord are called to trust in the Lord; He is their help. And their shield, the whole community, everyone together there at the end called to trust in the Lord. They're to trust in the Lord. Uh, We always need to take note of the name of the Lord, his covenant name, when God's people call out to him. Uh, This is the promises that God has made. He He always shows his steadfast love. He always shows his faithfulness to the promises he's made. He is a covenant God. He has promised to do certain things for his people. And he always shows himself faithful to do what he's promised. The Lord is our help and our shield. The Lord is the one in whom we can trust to always be faithful to the promises that he's made as our covenant God. Because he is not an unknown God. It's interesting to go through the list and see all of the things that the idols cannot do. And then to think of our God in the opposite kinds of terms. 
right? We have a God whose mouth speaks. He's a God who speaks to his people. We know about his covenant. We know what he's promised to us because he's spoken those promises. We know what he's promised to do, that he promises to provide for us, to protect us, to be present with us. And how do we know those promises? Because he has a mouth who speaks. He speaks clearly, breathes out a word that can be understood. His eyes are on his people. Right? We heard that this morning. His eyes roam all over the world. He sees everything that happens to us. He sees everything that's happening to us now. He sees everything that will happen to us in the future. We have a God who sees. We have a God who hears. His ears are open to the cries of his people. Um, one, of the, one of the glories of the Exodus is, if we read the Exodus story that leads to the Passover, one of the glories is that God looks down on the condition of Israel and their slavery, and he hears their cries coming up to him. And we're told that he, he hears, and he sees, and he knows. That's the kind of God we have. Not like the idols. And then who has hands who can do something. Hands that hold us. Everlasting arms that are underneath us. Hands that deliver. He delivers his people, we're told, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He has feet that go before his people, leading them through the world. And he has a throat that utters prayers for them with groanings that are too deep for words. Our God is everything the idols are not. He's a true God. And his name identifies himself as who he is. Um, that's why it's always so interesting in the Gospels as Jesus comes into the world that they call him Lord. They don't know the true import of that word when they use it for our Lord Jesus Christ. He is that covenant God come into the world. And we can think of how he acts for his people, how he speaks the Gospel how he heals with his hands, how he suffers his hands and feet to be pierced. We could go through all of these things and how the Lord Jesus continues to hear us and see us and intercede for us. He is a true God, powerful to save out of difficulty. He's exactly what we need. What do all of God's people need? What does Israel need? What does Aaron need? What does all who fear the Lord need? What do we need? We need a helper and we need a shield. What does it mean that he's a helper? It means that he's there with us in the midst of the trouble. That God is always present with his people as a helper. Serving the Lord doesn't mean we get delivered from all the difficulties of this life. There's sometimes people preach the Christian message as if that's what God is promising us, that we'll be delivered from all trouble. The Christian life is automatically an easy life. That's not what God promises us. What he promises us is that in the midst of the difficulties of this life, we'll have a helper. We'll have someone who is with us, who goes with us to intervene for us, to be a helper in the midst of what we suffer. That's what comfort comes from knowing that Jesus is with us always to the very end of the age. Whatever the church suffers in this age, we have a helper who is with us who will guide us through the troubles that we face. 
And it was not only a helper, but also a shield. I think helper has that sense. He helps us in the midst of trouble. And then shield has the idea that there are certain troubles from which he protects us completely. There are certain things he will not permit his church to suffer in this world. There are temptations that we face in this world, difficulties that we face in this world, but we are also shielded from other temptations that would be too much for us. Right? Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There are th- certain things we, we suffer and that God goes with us in our sufferings. But there are certain things from which he shields us. He shields us from temptation that would be beyond our ability to endure it. Um, and gives us only those temptations where we can provide a way out, that we can stand up under it. It doesn't mean freedom from all the difficulties of this world, but there are some that he bars from us. Because we have a God who is not only the helper in the midst of trouble, but who is also a shield from trouble. And that's the God in whom we are to put our trust. And that's how we know we won't fail to reach the glory that's coming. Just like Israel was brought safely out of Egypt and shielded from trouble, helped in the midst of certain troubles, and then shielded from others. Um, helped in the midst of escaping from the Egyptians, but when they rode down on them, God was a shield behind them and sunk Pharaoh in the Red Sea. And so always God's people know that as we journey from redemption to glory, we will be delivered from the wilderness of this world because we have a God who is with us, who is our help and our shield. The Lord Jesus Christ has left us a helper and a comforter to guide us all the way through to glory. And because God is our help and our shield in whom we can trust, we don't have to fear that we will reach that end. And that's why the psalm tells us that God's people also live in covenantal hope. Because the hope of the covenant is always that God blesses his people. That God's people will be blessed by him. Our God is not only powerful to save, but promises to bless his people abundantly. All who trust him will not only be helped and shielded by him, but will be blessed by him. That's the hope of verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. Why that repetition? It's to to highlight the fact that everyone who trusts the Lord will be blessed by him. Um, All those who trusted in the Lord to be their help and their shield will also be blessed by him. Um, That same threefold division only amplified in verse 13 by the promise that God will bless his people, both small and great. What does that mean, small and great? Uh, To his people of all ages. Uh, There's no people of God that have to wonder if these promises are for them. This is God's way of specifically saying his promise is for the children. Right, Not just for the grown-ups, boys and girls, but also for you. That God is a God who cares about you and who wants to bless you. 
have a wonderful promise. He's a God for the great, which means the grown-ups. Some of us are greater than others, um, more grown-up than others. Uh, but all of you who are small, the Lord still promises to bless you. And that's what God wants his people to know. It doesn't matter how big you are or how small you are. The Lord will bless you as his people. And why? Why does the God, why can we be sure that God will bless us? Is because we're so sure we'll always deserve his blessing. We're just that kind of people that have always been great people trusting in the Lord. No. Why can we be sure that the Lord will always bless us? Uh, because of what the psalmist says in verse 12, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. It's because God is faithful to always be who he is that he will bless us. Um, that's the great promise always in the scripture, when the Lord remembers. It doesn't mean that he somehow has forgotten, but it's our way of being communicated to us. He's specifically remembering the promises he's made and is going to act on them. And when he remembers his promises and when he acts on them, it means blessing for his people. It means that God is about to intervene in a great way. It means that God never forgets the promises that he's made. And it always in the, in the Bible signals a transformation of times of difficulty to blessing when God remembers. And when Israel was suffering and they called out to him, he remembered his promise. That was the signal that everything is about to be made right. Because when the Lord remembers, he blesses. God never forgets to be faithful to what he's promised his people. Um, that's why it's a call for patience always when things are not going well. Because we know that in time the Lord will remember and our fortunes will be reversed. And what is the substance of the blessing that God promises? It's nothing less than the restoration of all creation. Um, it's the Lord would bless us in our lives, but ultimately in the, in the fulfillment of his creation promises and the making of all things New. We're reminded of God's purposes in creation in verse 16. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The earth was entrusted to mankind. He wanted to make us his heirs and trustees of his creation. It was his generous gift to a loved people. And it was a great responsibility that was entrusted to us uh, to govern the earth in his name. He gave it to us that we would use it for his glory and enjoy happiness and fellowship with him. That was the purpose of the creation. It reminds us of what a generous father we had. It reminds us how badly sin has ruined that world that God made so perfect. That we violated our responsibility. That we brought sin and death into the world. And it's death that severs us from our ability to use that world properly and lives lives of gratitude and praise to our God. That's, I think, what verse 17 is getting after. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. That's not the world that God made. That's not the world that God wants to continue. It's the world that God has intervened to change. So that it's not filled with people who go down to death, who do not praise the Lord, but filled with those who live. And that's how God has promised to bless us, by restoring the creation and the purpose that he had made it for, to eradicate death out of the world and restore us 
to that eternal life of happiness and fellowship for which he designed the world. And that's why the psalmist can say with confidence, we will not go down to death as those who do not praise the Lord. Um, It does not mean that we will never be called to face death in this world, but it means that death is not our fate. Death is not our destiny. What is the destiny of the people of God blessed by the promises of God that have been made ours in Jesus Christ. We will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We will not be a people that will die, but will live and will praise the Lord. That's the blessing that he has worked by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we can enjoy the promises of this psalm in the life that Jesus Christ provides. And it gives us a clear idea of what our calling is here and now. Uh, To praise Him, to praise the Lord who has done these things for us, and to look forward with confident hope to that day that's coming when we will praise Him forever. When we will praise Him without ceasing. And when will the culmination of this blessing be realized? When we are made like Christ. When all things are made new and when God's people are made like him. There's a serious warning in this psalm. That those who make idols become like the idols they make. Dead nothings. But what is the promise to those who trust in the real Lord who is the living everything? They become like him. They become those who dwell in the heavens and do all that pleases them. We one day will do all that we please in heaven, not because we are going to be almighty in heaven, but because what will please us in heaven will please the Lord. Our hearts will be so changed that when we get to heaven, the things that that please God will please us. And so we'll be in heaven forever doing all that we please. And what will please us there? To give his name glory. To praise the Lord for his steadfast love and faithfulness. To praise his name forever. That's the glorious hope this psalm holds out to us. So I pray that all of us will be those who trust in the Lord and who see this hope and who give him glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that unto you and unto your name glory would be given and that we would be those who trust in you to be our help and shield and will realize the blessing of dwelling with you forever living in the heavens and doing all that pleases us, glorifying and praising your name forever. So we pray that you would help us to live lives of service and praise to you here and now in confident trust and hope of the praise we will offer forever in glory in the new heavens and the earth. We pray that the Lord Jesus would come quickly so that your name would be glorified in all the earth. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.